Hello. Passionate about sustainability, energy, and climate? You're in the right place. Welcome to Energetic. I'm Maureen Cornelis, and together we will engage with people who dedicate their lives to climate justice and making a just energy transition happen. They may be activists, scientists, policymakers, or other enthusiasts, just like you. Let the life stories and insights inspire you to build a better future for people and the planet. My guest today is one of the best experts I've met in the field of energy and consumer behavior. With a PhD in social sciences and over 10 years of experience as a consumer insight manager, Dr. Rose Chard has a wealth of knowledge to share with us on the topic of creating a low-carbon energy system that works for everyone. Rose is now Fair Future Lead at Energy Systems Catapult. She's a specialist in consumer-centered energy products and services, and she has been helping translate consumer insights into policy, product, and service to address issues of consumer vulnerability and energy parity. As part of Energy Systems Catapult, a leading technology and innovation center working towards a clean, intelligent, and inclusive energy systems, Rose is at the forefront of a pilot scheme that aims to prescribe warmth to vulnerable households. Rose is a true thought leader in the energy sector. So welcome, Rose, to Energetic. It's such a pleasure to have you today. Thanks for having me on. It's really nice to talk to you. Thank you so much, Rose. So can you tell us about your journey from your PhD in social sciences to energy systems catapults? What brought you to where you are now? Yeah, of course. So I've been at Energy Systems Catapult almost seven years and the world of uh, energy poverty and low carbon transitions has changed drastically in that time. So I first arrived at Catapult um, a couple of months after finishing my PhD um, when our consumer insight team at Energy Systems Catapult was was really small. There are only three of us um, and there are now nearly 20 of us um, in consumer insights, so a, a range of uh, user researchers, service designers, market researchers. And when I first arrived, having any conversations around innovation and low carbon and fuel poverty, they just seemed in complete contradiction to each other. People didn't quite understand why you'd have a sentence that said innovation and fuel poverty in the same, you know, close to each other. So it's been a really exciting kind of seven years, um, but definitely over the last five years has been such an increase in understanding and conversations around how do we make sure that net zero works for everybody, including low-income vulnerable consumers, um, that my role has uh, evolved and changed over that time in lots of different ways. We've done lots of different projects. So going from PhD to into the world of innovation um, and energy systems catapult has been amazing and it's really exciting. No day, no month, no year is ever the same. But yeah, I'm really glad to be using what I learned in my PhD almost every day in my in uh, my role, which I could never have imagined. Yeah. And what was exactly your PhD about? Was it about energy systems or did you have a broader like overlook? Yeah, so I was looking at how fuel poverty is actually experienced by people in their home and the connection um, between the lived experience um, of that with the policies that were designed. So trying to um, think around how policy actually translates into people's day-to-day -day lives. I mainly focused on working with older households and I 
was doing my PhD at a time when the UK policy and support for energy efficiency and fuel poverty was changing drastically. So it was the time of um, the Hills Review, where the definition of fuel poverty was being um, re-looked at, um, and the time of Green Deal, um, which was a, a major UK um, energy policy that has since been wound up um, in various forms. So it was great to be actually working with people on the ground. I also worked with energy advice organisations that are going into people's homes every day to deal with the problems that people have every day. But also then to step back and think, okay, so how is policy actually meant to be supporting people in these situations and how might we do do that better? I was starting to think about the low carbon transition in that, but I was mainly focused on the real lived experience and understanding how people make trade-offs in their everyday lives um, when they're faced with not being able to afford adequate warmth. Um, So that was at Lancaster University. Okay, that's so interesting and so fascinating. The previous episode was actually recorded with uh, Theresa Griffin, the uh, former member of the European Parliament, who was at the forefront of designing policies that actually take into account people living in energy poverty and This is uh, such a perfect combination of of your the two conversations because you are in the research side and now innovation as well. And she has been able to translate a few of those insights in her policy work. But of course, there is such a long and steep road uh, ahead. So in all those years, first as a PhD and, and now with Catapult, how have you seen policy evolve? What are your take really on the evolution of things? Yeah, so it has changed so, so much. So the fuel poverty strategy didn't used to, you know, when I was doing PhD, didn't make much reference, if any reference to kind of smart and innovation (laughs) and quite future thinking energy systems evolution. Whereas in the last five years, that's changed. So people acknowledge actually, as well as kind of tackling fuel poverty in its traditional sense, we need to think about how those households are going to engage with the smart energy system beyond smart meters. But as flexible tariffs come onto the market, um, you get new players, energy suppliers come and go, and there's new technology on board. How can we actually make sure that they benefit? So I think the other change for me is our understanding of how the changing smart, flexible energy system could and might be translated into consumers' homes. So we we often talked about smart and flexible and energy systems catapult has been really pioneering in talking about how we make it consumer-centred, which still to lots of the energy sector is still quite a difficult uh, kind of concept to get their head around. But in the last kind of five years or so, there's been a really, really, really big change um, in our understanding of, okay, so how are electric vehicles actually going to work for disabled consumers? Or how could time of use tariffs actually work for people that are at home all day and rely on their um, energy for health needs? Yeah, that has changed quite drastically in the last five years. There wasn't an understanding of that. That's a combination of it being more thought through around how the smart, flexible energy system is going to work for people's homes, but also that there's been a lot more insight and knowledge gathering well beyond energy systems catapult by lots of other players. Network operators in the UK, as well as energy suppliers, are having more and more of these conversations, doing more projects on how do we use 
smart meter data to identify when people are struggling, as well as you know how batteries might change how people live and how do we couple that with vulnerability. If we're mass changing heating systems away from gas central heating systems, how can we make that practical transition work for people that rely on their home to stay healthy and warm and comfortable. So they're they're the two main things really for me. I'm really excited to see whenever I hear policymakers and decision makers and people in industry talking about the lived experience of people and at conferences, both industry and academic, you see a lot more bringing the lived experience to to the front and realising how important that is. It isn't just around kind of the economy working or the commercial feasibility working, but actually how can you design something so we have a positive experience for consumers? Yeah, that's so interesting. And I'm totally with you on that because my background is also with the consumer protection and working with ombudsmen and seeing consumer disputes. And really, I remember... 10 years ago, 12 years ago, how smart meters were presented. They were only seen as really something complicated and something that would cost consumers a lot of money and not really as a solution or potential solution, uh, something that would bring benefits at the end of the day. So I think somehow there has been a lot like a reality check by uh, the tech innovations and the businesses to realize that they they were not and having the proper conversation because somehow the tech is mature and somehow there has been so many developments, but imposing something at the system level is not working so well. So now every business I talk to is trying to break really a uh, crack the case on how to make people want to engage with this kind of tech. And yeah, indeed, uh, citizens' engagement, because it goes way beyond consumers, it's really about citizens. And it seems to be the elephant in the room. And uh, where, in your view, do we stand now? I see you nod. And how do you think your work can help really with practical examples of things you have developed over the years? So I see my work helping on in two ways. So me and the team, there's, there's not just me at, at Catapult working um, around vulnerability. Um, we've got a great bunch of people at Catapult that have experience working on vulnerability and low carbon um, energy systems now, which is really exciting. But we help innovators think through how they can make their product, service, policy work for low-income vulnerable consumers. And for us, a fair energy future, we need to think about two things. So one, we need to think about how we mitigate risks, which is kind of the traditional way of thinking around fuel poverty, making sure people aren't less behind. But and then also, how can we harness opportunities? The energy system is drastically going to change. And therefore, there are opportunities that we could actually better serve people. So I'm not just concerned about making sure that people don't become more vulnerable, that might already be vulnerable, but actually people could have a better experience. Their situation could be improved. So for instance, you know, it's all been in the media in the UK lately around prepayment meters. But A lot of people want to pay as you go for their energy. And in the UK, we currently use prepayment meters to do that. But why can't we see some future smart, flexible 
energy innovation around how can we help people pay as you go for their energy, control their spend, understand how they're using energy and what that costs. And there's a real opportunity there for businesses to tackle a consumer problem and give people a better experience because I'd argue at the moment prepayment um, isn't working for the industry, it's not working for consumers, it's not working for the regulator. So how can we really see that as an opportunity? There's going to be lots of change. How can we harness that? And the other way that we that we support building a fairer future is actually testing and trialling some ideas that maybe others don't have the remit to test. Um, and that's where is a, an innovation centre that we, we have the opportunity to do that. So on um, one of our current major programmes, um, Warm Home Prescription, we've been looking at how the health and the energy sector might work together better to keep people warm and well in their home. We know that the health sector for a long time knows who has a health condition made worse by the cold and they the health sector suffers the consequences of that so approximately 860 million pounds a year is spent by the nhs dealing with people treating them as a result of them living in a cold home meanwhile the energy sector has the skills and the capability and arguably the remit to keep people warm in their home but doesn't know where people in vulnerable situations are, are. And at the moment spends lots of time and, and money and effort trying to find the right people. So we thought, what if we could bring the two sectors together so that the health sector could identify and engage with people that they know have a condition, are struggling with a cold home, um, and the energy sector can provide a way for them to actually stay warm and well at their home. So it's about having a system that allows to prevent then really cure or intervene when it's too late or recognize a certain form of vulnerability when it's already too late. Yeah, yeah. So we're, we're currently focused on households that already have a condition made worse by the cold and how can we prevent them or how can we help them maintain the best health they can maintain. But arguably, by keeping people warm and well in their home, even people that are well at the moment, you could potentially stop them from their health deteriorating. But we're focused on people that already have a health condition that we know is made worse by the cold, which is often respiratory diseases and focusing on those households at the moment. But there's there could be such a difference if we can keep people warm in their homes in our transition to net zero, um, health is such an important thing to humans and our homes. We spend so much time in them. That I think it's really crucial. And it's not just about temperature. Um, you know, it's obviously linked to temperature, but mould and damp in people's homes as well. Obviously, it has big impact on their health. It's really fascinating. And I think it's such an overlooked part of the conversation I mean, only recently we have started to see the links between energy poverty and uh, building uh, the building sectoral and the, the challenges and the the opportunities that, that lay uh, here. And and energy is only one of the components of a healthy home somehow. So, do you work with the other sectors? Yeah. So as um, part of our work um, as part of the Fair Future Programme at Energy Systems Catapult. So that's our work looking at how net zero can work for all low-income and vulnerable consumers. We work with a range of actors um, in the energy sector, in the housing space, um, local authorities, local government um, and national government because 
it's not going to be a simple solution. If if there was a simple solution, we already would have found it and we already would have tackled it. You know, people know how important it is and there are lots of ramifications of, of fuel poverty for all parts of lots of different organisations. So the solutions are going to need lots of different actors and lots of different sectors coming together and working together. And I think on Warm Home Scription in particular, but on lots of our projects around how we make net zero work for low-income vulnerable consumers, it's really clear that the solution isn't just going to come from one sector in particular. So on health, there's long been evidence that cold homes have a negative impact on people's health. But we haven't seen many people come up with solutions and test and trial them. And that's really what I'm really motivated about and what we focus on at Energy Systems Catapult is it's not going to be easy to come up with the solutions. And so testing and trialing them in the real world is the only way we're really going to move forward confidently. We could design something at a high level and then roll it out to the millions of households in, in the UK and Europe. But really, that's not the safest way. We should be testing and trialing things. So any solution on net zero and low-income and vulnerable consumers in particular needs to involve a range of actors. And I think housing, health and the energy sector and, and government working together can really move us forward on what solutions can work to make sure that everybody can benefit from net zero. And regarding specifically this uh, warm home system, what were the fears or the uh, challenges that were expressed by the people who were asked to be tested. I mean, their environment was tested. So what was the main challenge in, in getting them on board, really? So we haven't had much trouble at all getting householders on board. They, Anybody that has a health condition made worse by the cold intrinsically understands the impact of their home on their health. And they're doing the best that they can at that time with the resources that they've got. To maintain health. So we've done numerous trials before this year. We worked with NHS in Gloucestershire last year to do a small lean trial with 28 households. And in that, we discovered the area of the health service that felt it would be best placed to talk to people about this. And all the householders have felt that it's kind of logical that healthcare professionals are talking to them about keeping warm and well at home. We haven't had lots of people say, I don't know why a health professional would be talking to me about this. So that's been really interesting. I think the biggest challenge that we have with any of the solutions that we come up with at um, Energy Systems Catapult around low-income and vulnerable consumers is coming up with a delivery mechanism that's sustainable, that can work for the organisations. Take the healthcare sector. In the UK this year in particular, it's under immense pressure. No one is interested in, in putting more pressure on them, asking them to do more. So we really need to think carefully around how we engage with partners when we do any innovation, but not just on innovation, on, on any solution moving forward. It needs to be sustainable. It needs to be something that they can actually implement long term alongside probably what is their normal day job because this might not be part of their normal day job, at least at the moment. But for us, social prescribers in the UK really felt like this was a good remit for them. They already refer people into services in the local community for a range of different um, non-medicinal purposes. Um, so it might be to do with housing, might be to do with finances. 
and in lots of areas, they already refer people for kind of fuel poverty and energy support anyway. So this was just around bringing systems together a bit more, using data more smartly where possible, um, and really facilitating those conversations between sectors where there's a kind of mutual benefit, um, benefit for the sectors and benefit for the householders that they're all working with and the challenges that they're facing. Um, there's no shortage of people that are passionate around improving people's lives. What I understand is that the main challenge was really to deal with the workload of healthcare professionals, whether they are nurses or doctors or this, even getting what happens, like every every European country will have the same discussion, how much health systems are already under so much pressure and they don't have time and uh, they have to deal with the gazillion of things that are not related to curing people which may be administrative things or just uh, transport going from one patient to the other, for instance. So I guess that one of the biggest challenges was really to have the possibility to sit at a table with the healthcare professional and provide them with this some kind of training on the issues, wasn't it? Yeah, to a certain extent. I mean, we discovered in a trial um, a few years ago that GPs, you know, doctors and nurses didn't have the time to be prescribing, you know, talking to people around energy. They've got a very limited amount of time. They've got lots of other things to talk about. Um, and they've often got to deal with the immediate kind of problem that might need medical attention. But within the health service, there are lots of healthcare professionals that work with patients in lots of different ways. And that's what we really tried to harness. And actually getting to talk with those people and saying, you know, we're here to talk to you around helping people stay warm at home was not that big a challenge. We we have been inundated with people that are saying, we're trying to do something similar in our area. Can we talk to you about it? Even though it's been during winter, which is arguably their busiest, busiest time in general, but certainly about this. So I think the NHS and lots of different people within it are really keen to make time where possible to think around new ways to support people, especially with the cost of living crisis and um, the energy prices and the pressure under the NHS this winter. So I do, this winter, sadly, might just be the time when all of our evidence around how cold homes can make people's health worse has its moment to let's find a solution and galvanise people to really come together to start thinking about this. But just to be clear, something like warm home prescription, but some other solutions that are out there at the moment, they're not necessarily there to address systematic inequalities. There are, you know, problems with poverty, with it, poor health, but we can't wait until those things are all sorted to come up with solutions. And people are going to need People are very different. They're very diverse. They have different needs. They live in different homes, different situations. So we are going to need lots of different solutions. So whenever we're talking and thinking around net zero, there isn't, sadly, there isn't just going to be one solution that fits and works well for everybody and solves all poverty, solves decarbonisation, solves good health. We're going to need a range of things. Of course. So how does it work in practice, this prescription system? So the NHS identify households that have a condition made worse by living in a cold home mm -hmm. and at risk of being admitted during the winter period as a result. 
local energy advisors then contact them. So we're working with local energy advice organisations in each area. We're working in three areas, one in Scotland and two in England. Those local energy advisors work with the householder, usually on the phone, to understand their ability to keep warm at home, whether their heating system is working, whether their heating controls are working and their circumstances. Um, Then our bespoke digital tool estimates the cost of the heating for the winter. Mm -hmm. And the winter just gone, we credited their energy account um, with the amount needed for heating the home. And then this spring and summer, we'll we'll be working with a selection of households to start thinking around how they can keep themselves warm and well at home long term. So looking at low carbon heating options and improving energy efficiency of their homes. So the benefit and the real importance with the services patients can immediately start heating their homes to healthy temperatures having a solution that you work with households that have a problem today with keeping warm but the solution isn't going to happen for weeks and months it's not great so we are working on a solution that can deal with their immediate situation and start to help them think long term and make sure that they can take part in the low carbon transition as other households might be able to. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because very often when you think about the sustainable solution for uh, against warm uh, cold homes, it's really about energy efficiency and making some big retrofits in the home, but it can be a very, very invasive. And in the meantime, the situation of the person and the condition living condition may deteriorate. So the idea is that it provides first the identification of a household that will need support in the long term, but in the short term, something is designed really for them and they receive the warmth they need, they receive the comfort they need somehow. And do you plan to do something for homes that get too hot in the summer? I mean, now in the UK, you're having some heat waves too. Yeah, we are. No, we're not doing it within this um, project, but I think it is really important to think about health and the home in quite as broad a sense as we possibly can. But in in this case, in particular, we're focused on cold homes um, in particular. What we found was that last year in our our small-scale trial in Gloucestershire, once people had experienced being warm and well in their home, they were more open to having conversations around some of the more disruptive measures that could be done to, to their home to keep warm and well at home. But crucially, this spring and summer, what we're working on a warm home description is not just installing new technologies in people's homes or improving the energy efficiency. It's actually designing and innovating around the journey for the person in their home. How can we start to optimise between consumer experience and getting a lower carbon and reducing the energy consumption of their home? Because as you say, disruption is a really big barrier for low carbon transitions in people's homes. And it's one that the sector as a whole needs to recognise and to start to work on a bit more. And, you know, disruption for households with a health condition made worse by the cold is really a concern of theirs. So we'll be working on this winter, this spring and summer. How can you actually minimise the disruption where possible, but still decrease the energy consumption of somebody's home? So really working with consumers. And that's one thing and one principle that we work on at an energy systems catapult and the consumer insight team is how can we co-design 
with the householders, not themselves. Rather than do something to them, how can we actually work with them to work out the best solution um, for them where possible? So yeah, that's going to be really key. Yeah, it's also getting back to the conversation we had at the beginning about businesses trying or kind of imposing something with a certain kind of uh, very tech mindset, uh, certain abilities as well to project yourself into a certain situation. Whereas people, whether they are vulnerable or actually everyday people, they may not have the skills and the time and the interest in focusing on on seeing the bigger picture and understanding that their living condition, their house, their energy has an influence on climate change, on disruption of climate, actually, and on the environment, etc. And yeah, for instance, I find it very strange, let's say, whenever I see a list of the things you can do to be, have a more sustainable lifestyle, it's barely mentioned that switching to a, a green supplier or having a more mindful approach to what your energy is one of the key things. And I find it really interesting what you do at Catapult with this idea that you have to build on people's experience to also understand how to to construct the next step. And it's not the first time in this podcast we, we have conversation with the people who are building on lived experience. And I, I always find it pretty, pretty fascinating how that translates into really practical approaches. So what gets you really excited at the moment, Ruth? And um, also, let's say we talked about policy products, also service design products. So what gets you excited, really? Yeah, so I think lots of things. I think something that I think there's so much potential in is this acknowledgement that actually if we design for um, low-income vulnerable energy consumers, there can be benefits to a whole range of consumers. You know, if we think around subtitles, subtitles were originally designed in the US uh, captions for television so that people that were hard of hearing could watch um, television and, and still follow along. But actually the, the benefits of um, subtitles is is great. So if you think if you're in an airport and it's really noisy or they haven't got the sound on, you can follow the text whilst the television's on. For somebody that doesn't have English as a first language, if they're learning to read English, that can help. And there are lots of great examples where if we design with low-income vulnerable consumers in mind, it can benefit lots of other people. So one kind of tech one is if we design for people that don't always have access to the internet, whether they can't afford an internet connection or whether their broadband is is poor quality, then that can also benefit people when, as always happens every now and again, your broadband goes down. Well, it means you don't lose access to all services. So I think there's so many interesting things that we could do just to not overhaul the the technologies and the products and services that exist, but just tweak them so that they work slightly better um, and they work well for for consumers. Because as you say, is never going to work designing a piece of technology and then rolling it out to consumers and just expecting them to pick it up and understand what's going. I often give the example that I live in a new build house that's just three or four years old. And in order to turn my heating on, I have to press the button that says off. And the instruction is to reactivate your heating, press the off button, reactivate my heating. I mean, 
I've never talked about activating or reactivating my heating ever. I don't think anyone, any customer ever has. And to have to press the off button, you know, that's hard enough for me to understand. English is my first language. I've got good eyesight, but the off button is very small. And the text is very small. Plus, if you didn't have English as a first language, understanding what on earth that sentence means and what you have to do as a result. So I, I'm really excited that there are some, this doesn't require us to completely change what we do. And, you know, thermostats are still going to be in people's homes. You know, we can still have smart meters, there's still going to be tariffs and all, all of that. But we can make some changes based on the lived experience so that it helps people use products and services that, the way they're designed. Because at the end of the day, if we introduce products and services into people's homes and they don't give them what they need, they're going to try and use them to get what they want. And in doing so, they might the products and services won't then perform as they've been designed to because we made assumptions on how they would be used. They're not used like that. And then they don't perform, it, you know. So I think that's that's really exciting. And I just think there are so many opportunities for different businesses to work together to really think differently about how we use energy in our home, what energy is for. You know, no, no consumer wants to use X number of kilowatt hours. They want what energy is for. They want a warm home. They want to be healthy. They want their home to be warm enough so that they can invite people in and socialize. They want to be able to take a shower. They want good hygiene. They want to be able to wash their clothes. And until the sector starts focusing on why energy is important to people, then I think we'll always struggle a bit. But there's definitely a shift that's happening. Um, much more focus on it's not just kind of ethically important to think about consumers. It's actually good for business because we won't have to go back and redesign the product and service when it doesn't work the way people expect it to. Um, so, yeah, it's just really exciting space to work in. So, in a nutshell, what you do is provide subtitles for normal people about the energy sector, right? It, sometimes it feels like that, yeah. I, I think a lot of my time is spent helping people question their assumptions mm -hmm. about people. Mm -hmm. It's really hard for any of us to think in someone else's shoes. But that's exactly what I see my job as. And something that I dream of one day is that the energy sector, the people that are designing net zero, will be as diverse as the consumers that we're designing for. The day when I don't get invited to an all-male panel will be a day of dreams. But yeah, I just think there's so much space for more diversity amongst those of us that are designing net zero so that it works well for the diversity of people that are going to be using it. That's the only way forward in my mind. I totally relate with you on that. I think we've already made quite some progresses on acknowledging the difference and the backgrounds and having more female representation also at the uh, top level, top decision-making levels, etc. But still, there is a very, very long way to go. And many things are still designed for um, healthy, wealthy and uh, witty middle-aged men, white men. So it's about also getting a diversity of people acknowledged as well and listen to them because it's, I mean, Europe and the world, we are so much more than than this handful of people. We are, we are so different and And I think it's so important also to have this conversation now that the European Union is uh, 
thinking of redesigning again uh, its uh, its electricity system. And uh, a few weeks ago, I was invited to a conversation, very high level conversation. And the only thing that came to my mind, because it was very tech, I was like, but this this design, for whom are we making it? And still, I see many, many organizations, many regulators, many businesses not having the people in mind. They have like the the proper functioning of uh, the the system in mind, but but if they don't have the who and the really like normal people understanding what it at stake, I still they are kind of uh, still failing to have a proper understanding. For us, you really, if you're going to design any solution, you have to start with the user problem that you're trying to solve. If you don't have a good handle on what are you actually trying to help somebody do? Now, it might be help them to do something that they can't usually do or just make it better and easier for them to do something that they're that they value that's important to them. But you're right, if you don't have a good understanding or you've made assumptions in what they really want and have a problem with, um, and then you introduce uh, a technology often, but it can be a service or a policy, without that clear understanding of what's really the problem that you're trying to solve, then quite quickly, you know, you start coming up with lots of questions around why isn't this working the way we expected? Why aren't people... Why don't people want it? So in um, some of my previous work, when we were thinking around how do we help low-income vulnerable consumers participate in the energy system, um, we divided it into three, three things. So how can they afford it? How can they access it? And how can they use it? And until people can do all three of those things, they can't really take part. They can't really have access to it. And when anybody's thinking around their product or service, I think it's really important to to challenge and question, okay, so how are people actually going to be able to use this? How are they going to pay for it? Not necessarily upfront, but as they use it and, and how can they access it? And in the UK, you know, it's really sad that it still feels so true, but how on earth would a household that doesn't have access to the internet or isn't familiar with using the internet, how would they find out if they can be on a better energy tariff? You know, and then we're just talking about switching energy tariffs and buying the same thing. But in a world where it's a lot smarter and more flexible and there's a lot a bigger range of choices, we need to make sure the information is accessible um, to people. I think something I haven't mentioned that I think of as as my role and our, our role at NG Systems Catapult is to show people that it is safe to innovate with low-income vulnerable consumers. I think often people design for essentially themselves because that feels the safest thing to do. And the idea of doing any innovation with households that you might label vulnerable, they're just worried about the risks And actually, people in vulnerable circumstances are the same as other people. We can, lots of us can be vulnerable at any at any moment. Lots of us can get poorly. Lots of us can lose our job. Now, vulnerability is different. We have transient vulnerabilities and more permanent vulnerabilities, and people's situation can be um, very complex. But I think it's really important that we start to think about innovation, if done in a safe, careful way. 
can be safe with people that that aren't like us. Um, and I am constantly challenged working, you know, on new projects where I think, gosh, I don't know anything about this area. But that's okay. We're, whenever we're designing net zero, the future is is going to look different from now. So we have to get used to kind of uncertainty and doing innovation safely and learn really learning from it, not just doing things doing lessons learned and then never capturing it and including it in innovation, but actually including it in how we move forward on on solutions. And how does the zero transition looks like for people? I think it could be great. I think as it starts to, as the solutions start to become more consumer-centered, which they definitely are, I think There's so much potential for people to live in warmer homes, leading healthier lives, understanding more around their energy consumption if they want to, or less if they also want to. That's fine. You don't. Not everybody needs to be an energy geek. You know, let's that that is often assumed that people have to get very engaged with their energy. But in the future, no, some people want to be less involved in their energy consumption in the future, that's absolutely fine. So I think there's great potential. It's just around us getting on with it. There's not much time now until 2050. And I like to think that we will end up with a consumer-centered energy system that really works for a range of households. And I think there will be a range of solutions. There's so many people working in this space with a great range of knowledge and expertise. And, and times are shifting a little at the moment. So I think the future could look really hopeful for people, really exciting. And just to lead healthier, warmer lives um, or cooler lives if overheating is is the problem. But better homes and better engagement with the energy sector is is really the aim. And a better planet too. Thank you so much, Rose. Uh, it was such inspiring and uh, hopeful conversation. I loved it. So thank you so much. And I will put everything in the show notes. You will... Uh, to our listeners, you will be able to reach out to Rose and uh, learn so much about her work following her on, uh, on LinkedIn and Instagram as well. Thank you so much, Rose. Great. Thanks. Thanks ever so much for the conversation. It was really great, really enjoyable. I look forward to listening to more conversations with new people in the future. Thanks for listening to Energetic. I hope you enjoyed our deep dive into sustainability and the just energy transition with the most inspiring stakeholders. All links and resources are in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you like this podcast, why not recommend it to a friend or a colleague? To continue the conversation, head on over to Twitter or LinkedIn. Thank you for lending your ears. That's all for this episode. Until next time.